0: back. We'll be right back. Welcome, everyone, to Soccer 101. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on this episode, we're going to be taking a deeper look at the Olympics to get to the bottom of the decades-old question, why isn't men's Olympic soccer, or football, Olympic football, more popular? A quick disclaimer about why I phrase it that way, women's soccer at the Olympics is currently the second most important competition in the women's game behind the World Cup. You will usually get the best players for some of the best national teams, and it is awesome. You should watch. And chances are, if you're listening to this episode, you probably are already do. But the situation with the men's side of Olympic football is decidedly different. Today we're going to look at why that's the case, how we got to where we are today, and what changes, if any, could bring the competition more prominence on the global stage. To do so, we're going to have to take a trip in the Wayback Machine. Given that the World Cup didn't exist until the 1930s, for the first third of the 20th century, the preeminent global sporting event was the Olympic Games, and the most important international sporting organization was the International Olympic Committee, or the IOC. When the first Modern Olympic Games took place in 1896, amateurism was the established rule. The primary mind behind the creation of the Modern Olympics, Pierre de Coubertin, wrote in his memoir, quote, For every man, woman, and child, sport offers an opportunity for self-improvement quite independent of profession or position in life. Sport is the birthright of all equally and to the same degree, and nothing can replace it, end quote. Coubertin was a strong advocate for sport in everyday life, and strongly repudiated the idea that athletic and endeavors were strictly the domain of the wealthy. He fought hard to ensure that amateurism prevailed at the Olympics from the earliest possible point. The word amateur itself derives from the Latin word amator, amator, which means lover, which further underscores the idea that the Olympics were meant to be a platform that rewarded the purity of amateur sport and the passion the individual athletes felt for their respective endeavors. Though amateurism was the established norm when the Olympics were founded, professionalism had already taken root in football. Under-the-table payments and testimonials had been in operation since the early 1880s, but it was in 1895 that a major shift began when the English FA, faced with a potential revolt from clubs advocating for professionalism, officially relaxed their amateurs-only policy. Thus, the seeds of professionalism were already sown even before the Olympics began. Football was not featured, at least in an official capacity, in the 1896 Games, and the victories for Great Britain in 1900 and Canada, yes Canada, in 1904, were less than official and today are not recognized by FIFA. In fact, it wasn't until 1908 London Games that an official tournament was organized featuring amateur sides from France, Great Britain, Denmark, Sweden, and the Netherlands. It's worth noting that the amateur status of some players was already debatable, with Great Britain fielding several players already affiliated with professional clubs. Olympic football remained exclusively European in the tournament's next two iterations, with Great Britain winning again in 1912 and then Belgium claiming gold in 1920, following the conclusion of the First World War. It was the 1920 games that proved the staying power of football, in fact, as it was far and away the most popular draw at the Olympics. Here's an excerpt from David Goldblatt's excellent book, The Ball is Round. Quote, While the athletics and other events were poorly attended, the football matches were full to overflowing, with 40,000 coming to see Belgium play Czechoslovakia in the final. The Czechoslovaks, 2-0 down in half an hour, decided the English referee was too biased for their liking and walked off the field nine minutes later. The growing popularity of football saw new breakthroughs in 1924 when the first non-European entrants took part. Amateur teams from Egypt, Uruguay, and the United States were in attendance, but it was that Uruguay squad that really turned heads. Arriving in France, which was the host nation, uh, via third-class steerage on a steamer, the Uruguayan team slept wherever they could and played exhibition games to raise money to finance their Olympic campaign. And what a campaign it was. They beat Yugoslavia 7-0 in their opener, followed by a 3-0 win over the United States and a 5-1 victory over France. And that was before earning gold in the final, courtesy of a 3-0 domination of Switzerland. For those not keeping track at home, that's 18 goals for and one against for a goal difference of plus 17 over four games, which is also known as being the U.S. women's national team. Aside from Uruguay destroying all who lay before them, 1924 was a momentous year for the growth of professionalism. England, Scotland, and the United States had already established professional leagues, but 1924 saw both Austria and Hungary establish professionalism as the norm in their countries. Italy, Spain, and Mexico had all followed suit by the next Olympics in 1928, which saw Uruguay once again earn gold. That's two Olympic golds for them. Side note, if you look at the current Uruguay national team's jersey, you will see four stars above the crest instead of two. Because they've won two World Cups, but they've won two Olympics, two plus two is four, and that's kind of fair because the Olympics were sort of the World Cup before the World Cup existed. But back to the purposes of today's show, the disconnect between the amateur-only policy of the Olympics and the growing implementation of professionalism was just one of the many reasons why the idea of an independent global football competition had already begun to take root. We're talking about the World Cup. Planning for the first World Cup began around the time of the 1928 Olympics, and the fundamentals of the competition were that, number one any nation could compete, and number two, it would be open to both professionals and amateurs. Just where that first World Cup would be held was up for debate until Uruguay, who wanted to further demonstrate their importance in world football, stepped up. Again, from the ball is round, quote, Uruguay's government offered to pay visiting teams' expenses, undertook to build a new and fitting stadium for the occasion, and proposed that the tournament begin in July of 1930, 100 years after the inauguration of Uruguay's first independent constitution. The 1930 World Cup saw 13 teams from three confederations take part, with Uruguay, not surprisingly, emerging as the inaugural winners, courtesy of a 4-2 win over hated rivals Argentina in the final. In response to the creation of the World Cup, the IOC dropped soccer from the 1932 Olympic Games. It was brought back in 1936, but served as a good example of what the Games would soon become, nationalism wrapped in sport. The German organizers of the Berlin Games had lobbied to have football reinstated, partially for financial reasons, because football was the only sport at the Olympics that then guaranteed gate revenue, but also for the opportunity for Germany to impress on the pitch... Which they then failed to do, with an angry Adolf Hitler storming out of his first and only football match, a 2-0 loss to Norway. He did still go for a photo op with the great British team, which was then used for propaganda purposes. Slightly less so than when the entire British team did the Nazi salute prior to a 1938 game. The less said about that, the better. The growth of professionalism in football continued unabated, and the gap in talent between the World Cup and the Olympics continued to widen. The rise of communism in post-war Europe brought the efficacy of an amateur-only policy into starker contrast. Soviet bloc athletes from Eastern Europe were state-sponsored, as professionalism was outlawed in those countries. This so-called shamaturism led to inexperienced amateur teams from the West getting dominated by Soviet bloc teams composed of seasoned professionals that technically were not professionals, even though they were. Starting with the 1952 Games and running through 1988, Eastern Bloc nations won gold medals at all but one Olympics, credit to France in 1984. But aside from that, there were gold medals for Hungary, the Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, Poland, East Germany, and Czechoslovakia. In fact, with the exception of Denmark's second-place finish in 1960, an Eastern Bloc country earned gold or silver at every Olympic Games from 1952 through 1980. The Soviet Union also picked up gold in 1988, and Poland earned silver in 1992. Since professionalism was outlawed in communist countries, all players qualified as amateurs, which is how many members of the famed Honved of the 1950s, played amateur teams when they won gold in 1952. Ferenc Puskas and Zoltan Sibor against amateurs, that doesn't really seem fair. Perhaps the best example of this might be the Hungary team that won Olympic gold in 1964, only a few months after nine of their amateur squad members had secured third place at the 1964 European Championships. European Championships and the Olympics in about a year... Feels like you've got some professionals in there. The shamaturism dilemma exposed the difficulties of insisting on amateurs only, but other issues brought the conversation about professionalism more to the forefront. The 1968 Olympic Games were the first to be broadcast live and in color, and meant that athletes became household names faster and more regularly than ever before. Companies hungry for sponsorship opportunities began offering those same athletes money for endorsements, making the claims of amateurism all the more dubious. But another problem with the 68 Games relates to the host itself, Mexico City, and its elevation. The elevation was proven to have a negative impact on performance. Professionals could take the time to train at altitude to prepare for that difference amateurs could not. The IOC allowed for a larger training time I think it was six weeks instead of the usual four as a make weight but the writing was on the wall that things needed to change. More on how that change would come to be in just a moment but first a word from today's sponsor which is Stereo You've heard us talk about the Stereo app before. It has thousands of live conversations with a wide range of genres for every interest including news, comedy, sports and more You choose whether to be a co co host, participate as a guest, or simply listen in on exclusive conversations. The app allows podcast creators to build a more intimate relationship with their fan base by engaging them in direct conversation. Listeners can record a question and send it directly to you. In our experience doing uh, stereo shows for Soccer 101, Joe and I did one last night, if you're listening to this uh, when the show comes out, uh, on the USA's 1-0 win over Costa Rica in CONCACAF Olympic qualifying. We did get the usual uh, Soccer is stupid. Call it football. We did get the usual. um, Neither of these teams is very good. But that was like two comments, and the rest of them, the many, 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 many more that we did get were all about the game and questions about qualifying, questions about the Olympics, questions about the U.S. senior team. And it is a really nice way to be able to interact with people directly. You get their questions coming to you. You can respond on the fly. And it's a bit more formal than, say, our usual Total Soccer Show listener question episodes where there's a lot of research. You want to put a lot of thought into it. With these, you can kind of have a little bit more of a back and forth. And it's really, really fun. So you can join us every week uh, when we do our Soccer 101 shows over on the Stereo app. Just download the Stereo app and follow us at Stereo.com slash RockwellTSS. Checking to make sure that is indeed my username. It is. One more time. Download the Stereo app. Follow us at Stereo.com slash RockwellTSS. Thank you so much to Stereo for sponsoring this show and making it easier for us to do those live shows. Now back to the Olympic Conversation. The move away from amateurism at the Olympics began to pick up speed in 1972 when longtime IOC president Avery Brundage retired. Brundage had been a champion of amateurism in the Olympics, and his departure could have opened doors were the IOC not dealing with several different fires at once. When new president Michael Morris took over, he was forced to deal with the financial flop of the 1976 Montreal Games after Denver had been selected as the host city but was forced to withdraw, also had to deal with the boycotts of the 1980 Summer Games in Moscow. In addition, Lake Placid, the host of the 1980 Winter Games, and Los Angeles, the host of the 1984 Summer Games, were chosen by default due to a lack of competing bids. Morris stepped down from his position following the conclusion of the Moscow Games and was replaced by Juan Antonio Samaranch, who took over in 1980 and held the position until 2001. During the early part of his tenure, Samaranch worked diligently to rescue the IOC from its financial despair. He revamped the Olympic sponsorship, uh, opting for global partnerships over permitting each national federation to select local sponsors. This placed less financial strain on host cities, and the Olympics eventually became a desirable event with multiple bids for each game. Samaranch's guiding philosophy was to make the Olympics the pinnacle of athletic competition, which meant making sure the world's greatest athletes were participating, which meant including limited professionalism. The 1984 Los Angeles Games saw the participation of professional athletes in hockey, tennis, and soccer, but only after some last-minute decision-making. FIFA had opposed the introduction of professionals in order to preserve the supremacy of the World Cup, and so an agreement was reached Two weeks prior to the start of the Games, European and South American teams would only be allowed to field players that had not yet participated in a World Cup, while the rest of the world could field their strongest possible sides. The short window between the compromise and the start of the Games was expected to limit the impact the decision would have. Here's an excerpt from a New York Times article around that time about how it all played out. Quote, The decision, intended to create balance, created chaos. The United States abandoned its all-amateur team, which had played together for 50 games. It kept five of the amateurs, replaced the 12 others with professionals, and was eliminated in the first round of Olympic competition. France won the gold medal with an all-professional team. End quote. Despite the haphazard nature of the footballing side of things, the Los Angeles Olympics are considered to be one of the most successful games of the modern era, bringing in a profit of over $250 million. The writing was on the wall. Professionalism here to stay. I'm assuming it was professionals who wrote that on the wall. They had a vested interest, after all. In 1986, new rules were introduced that changed who would be in control of determining which athletes could compete in the Olympics. Prior to that time, power had always rested with the IOC. After the change, it would be left up to each respective sports controlling International Federation, which is a long way of saying that FIFA took charge of soccer at the Olympics. FIFA president Zhao Havalange was still wary of the Olympics becoming a rival to the World Cup, which was a cash cow that didn't need to be shared with the IOC or other organizations. They wanted to keep that one for themselves. There was still obvious value to such a well-known and prestigious event like the Olympics, so a new plan was put in place. Starting with the 92 games, professionalism in soccer would be allowed, but only for players under the age of 23. A final adjustment was made for the 96 Olympic Games when the inclusion of three overage squad members was permitted. And that brings us more or less to the present day, where Olympic football remains exciting to some, but widely less watched than other tournaments around the globe. And there are a few different reasons for that. We're going to look at some of them now. Firstly, as we've already covered, the Olympics had been dying a slow death until the 1980s. And while things turned around, interest in Olympic soccer remained minimal. Correcting that negative trajectory would have been simple if the world's biggest names had been allowed to participate. As journalist Ron Rappaport, who has covered at least six Olympic games, said, "Uh, The pros are there for a reason. People will tune in to watch athletes they know. The pro athletes are pre-sold to the public, which means increased viewership. The U23 rule pretty effectively curbed that possibility. But what we could still have is lots of U23 players in there. And a quick look at the ages of some of the best players in the world shows that this could be an incredibly exciting prospect with some incredibly strong teams composed entirely of young players. France, who will be participating in the Japan Olympics this summer, could field a team featuring Kylian Mbappe, Usman Dembele, Marcus Turam, Eduardo Kamavinga, Dayo Upamakano, and Dan Axel Zagadu. They could... But they probably won't, and here's why. Olympic soccer at the Tokyo Games will take place from July 21st through August 7th. The 2020, now 2021, Euros will be held from June 11th to July 11th. Could, say, Mbappe play in both? it's very, very unlikely. The Gold Cup and the Copa America are also happening this summer, and participating nations will send their strongest teams to those competitions, even if they qualify for the Olympics. But even if there weren't conflicts, you still probably wouldn't get the best possible squads because FIFA is FIFA. Why let that happen at the Olympics when you can build anticipation for the World Cup, a global tournament that also happens every four years, and whose profits, again, FIFA is solely entitled to keep? And so the brilliant minds at FIFA also chose to not make the Olympics part of the official international FIFA match calendar, meaning that clubs are not required to release players to participate like they are for the Euros or the World Cup or even international friendly windows. So even though we have teenagers bagging goals in the Champions League and winning the Premier League, their clubs are not obligated to release them for Olympic duty, even if they're under that age limit. So you can't get the biggest names, and even if you could, they wouldn't be released by their clubs. You can't really get the biggest names at U23 level either for the same reason, which all leads to the general perception that men's football at the Olympics just isn't that important with... Certain exceptions. Brazil prioritized it in 2016 because they were hosting and had never won before. Now they have, and I doubt Neymar will be heading to Japan this time around. Germany finished second at the 2016 Olympics and prior to that tournament had not qualified since 1988 when they were still West Germany. Italy has only managed one Olympic gold medal. Added together between Germany, Brazil, and Italy, that's two Olympic gold medals for nations that have won a combined 13 World Cup titles. Instead, football at the Olympics can be a source for the unexpected, like when Mexico won in 2012, Cameroon in 2000, or Nigeria in 1996. It could be an event where a 21-year-old Lionel Messi and a 30-year-old Juan Roman Verkelme finally win some silverware. Or it can be an avenue for breakout performances from not-yet-household names, like that 2016 Germany squad, which included 20-year-olds Niklas Sula and Julian Brandt and 21-year-olds Leon Goretzka and Serge Gnabry. And for every uninspiring Olympic squad announcement, there will always be opportunities for greatness. Like when a 21-year-old Mohamed Salah led Egypt against a Brazil side featuring a 20-year-old Neymar and a 19-year-old Lucas Moura. And that does sort of make me hyped for this summer and the possible names we could see involved, including, hopefully, possibly, maybe potentially, the United States. And that feels like an optimistic slash good place to end things. So I will just say thank you again to everyone for listening. Thank you again to Stereo for sponsoring today's episode and for continuing to sponsor Soccer 101. We really appreciate Stereo allowing us to do the kind of live reaction shows, the live review shows, have that audience interaction. And just, you know, get to chat a little bit more. It's always nice in the pandemic era. Once again, if you download the Stereo app, uh, you can follow us at Stereo.com slash Rockwell TSS. And you can listen in on our conversations or any other conversations that might be happening. You've got lots of content all day, all the time. If you just enjoy having people talking in the background while you're doing work or doing dishes, They've got you covered. So once again, thank you to Stereo. Thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning in and listening to me talk about the Olympics. I hope you've enjoyed this very abbreviated history of Olympic football. We will be back next week with another Soccer 101 episode. But for now, I've been Taylor Rockwell. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon.